My name is Michael again. Um, excited to have you with us. For uh, just to get it out of the way, because a lot of people have have asked um, about Hezekiah's tunnel. If you were here a few Sundays ago, uh, I mentioned how greatly, um, deathly afraid I was of going through Hezekiah's tunnel. In fact, it had prevented me from going to Israel for some time. Um, I, clearly, I'm here. So either a, I skipped it, which is a possibility. Or B, I actually made it through. Um, and the answer is, uh, is, is B. Uh, so, yeah. Many of, you, I, many of you I know were praying for me and for people like Magda, who was also um, a little bit nervous. Uh, we were in the front. It went Scott, me, um, someone who will not be named because I'm going to talk about him. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, someone else. And then Magda, I think you were right after that, right? Uh, so those of us who were most scared went up front and Scott goes, we will set a new record going through this tunnel. And I'm like, yes, we will. And we left those who were behind like Jill Hartman way in the dust. We didn't care. Like if the K falls in on you, we're okay with that because we're going through. This is what the body of Christ does, right? Um, so it's 1,800 feet long, uh, which for those of you counting is about six football fields, of which uh, there is one football field where you're walking, those of us who are my height, are walking like this. Um, and I got, uh, during that time, I, I was beginning to feel the hyperventilating, hyper, you know, thing going on. Um, I had an earbud in the entire time singing Matt Mars, uh, Lord, I Need You, on repeat. Um, and people, when we came out, were like, was that you singing? I'm like, yes, it was. <laughs> totally me singing. Um, but it was during this time that the guy behind me freaked out. Um, and I thought he was going to end my life in order to get out. And so I went into pastoral mode going, no, it's okay. Everything's fine. <gasps> Just crying in front. He couldn't see me crying. But uh, so it was, it was great for those of you who prayed. Thank you. I felt it. I made it through. If you invited me to go in again, I would say, you don't value your life very much, do you? I will end you. I'm, yes. If I go back in again, it will be because Jesus walks me in there by himself physically. Uh, there you go. Uh, so, hi. I, I just got back from the Holy Land and um, began Holy Week in Jerusalem, which is kind of a, just mind-blowing to think of. Um, I, I was on the Mount of Olives, um, and, and we walked down the Mount of Olives, and we walked through the Sheep's Gate where, where Jesus would have entered into the temple, um, uh, the temple courts and, and gone in. And I mean, just mind-blowing. People have been there a lot to Israel from our church, but no one's actually ever been at this time of year on this kind of trip. And so when we were there, it, just, it was just overwhelming to me to be in the place where it all went down at the time that it all went down. And it was so amazing to be there and to, and to just go into the Garden of Gethsemane and, and be where Jesus slept. And it was amazing to be up. And in, in uh, this isn't the Bible I carried with me. I had a much smaller one. I have uh, some olive branches from that garden of olive groves and trees um, and, and took it home. And there's like these trees that are over 2000 years old. So they would have been the trees that Jesus walked by. Amazing stuff. And then we go into the old city and we find ourselves at a place called the church of the Holy Sepulcher. And the church of the Holy Sepulcher is where the tomb of Jesus exists. And, and this is what it looks like. 
Now, here's what you might be thinking. I don't know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking a lot of people like these are all George Bush supporters. Thousand points of light type stuff. Um, These are uh, clearly a ton of people with candles surrounding what is in the middle, which is the tomb. Now, there is this thing in archaeology called the Meyer scale. And the Meyer scale is something that they take into account uh, different things like, um, is it in the right location? Are there documents to support it? Does it tell the right story? All these different things they take into account and they weigh whether or not an event happened at a location on this Meyer scale. Like, say, uh, a scale of like a two. Like, okay, this isn't really where it happened. This is where people come and, and remember that, like the birth of Jesus, the place where people go to celebrate that. It's not very high. The chances that that was actually where it happened are really low, but people go and they remember that event there. So it's a very powerful place, but it's not actually very high. Then you'd get to something like a seven, and it's like, ooh, the location really is pretty good. The time period of things that we're uncovering, pretty intense. The story surrounding it, the documentation, pretty good. This is kind of a seven. This right here, they believe to be a nine. They believe to be a nine out of ten. Like, this is the tomb where Jesus was buried. Now, I know what you're saying because I said the same thing. Was there a really big building around the tomb? Like, this huge building with this ginormous dome. And if you've ever been to the Church of the Sepulchre, you know through these columns over here, if you keep going, there's another ginormous dome that's just beautifully gold-painted with Pictures of Jesus and the disciples in Greek painted on on it. And, you know, because that's what really happened. So you, you look at this, and then you look at the tomb itself, this thing, in the center that all these people are surrounding. And you see, like, the little beautiful thing on top. And you see, if you can look, there's, like, these great architectural details. There are actually, there's a gutter over here. Um, which I like. So at one point it was outside. Uh, but uh, you have all of this stuff. And then if you look... Very closely, actually don't, because you really can't tell in this picture. There are um, 12 pictures of the disciples underneath the entrance. Um, and it's like these type of pictures, you know. It's like these weird pictures of the disciples underneath the, uh, over the entrance. Because, you know, when they buried Jesus, they all were like, hey, let's take pictures real quick and post them over the entrance to the tomb. Clearly, this has been modified. Clearly, they have built a building around it. They have built uh, this small thing and then later came in and built this ginormous place to mark the tomb. But according to people much smarter than I, this is the tomb of Jesus. Now we come in here after having been multiple places in Israel. We ended in Jerusalem. So this is towards the end of our two weeks over there. And we come in, we had been to this place called Gamla and it has a first century synagogue where Jesus we know taught and there are stuff that was there when Jesus was there, this threshold. We had quiet time, and I went, and I just sat on the threshold, knowing that he'd been there. This place, I walk in, and I'm like, eh. I mean, think about it. This is where Jesus was laid to rest and then went, you know what? I'm done with death, and he walks out. And yet, for me and a couple of other people that were in line with me when we finally got the chance to go through the tomb, we were like, I don't know, it just doesn't feel as powerful as some of these other places. Part of it could be how touristy it is. 
There are so many people in lines and so many tour guides and people pushing you to get into line. And these little Europeans who don't know the strength of America are going, just pushing you, and they smell. It's really bad. And just moving you aside to try to get into line and, and all these things. And, and then there was this, um, this girl who was standing. She was right ahead of us, this girl and a guy. And she, she walks up. She gets about to right here before you enter, and she turns and her boyfriend, husband, whomever, um, takes out a phone, and he's going to take a picture of her. And she goes like this. He goes. <clears throat> she couldn't figure out how to stand. How do you stand and pose for a picture in front of the tomb of Jesus, right? Do you smile like, here I am, or wait, that's not appropriate. Do I look solemn? Do I like, like nothing? Um, how, and she went through like three or four different facial variations, which I found so amusing um, before, <laughs> before he took the picture. Um, and then you, and then you go in when we first walked through this area, before we gotten in line, we were going to see something else in the church. Um, I, I had this urge and I turned to the people who were near me. I said, does anyone else have the urge to just go, he's not in there. Seriously, you're waiting in line to see an empty room. But, but I didn't, I moved on. So in John chapter 20. We'll get back to the sepulcher. Early Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and I don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple ran to the tomb to see. The other disciple outran Peter and got there first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying to the side. Then the other disciple also went in and he saw and believed. For until then, they hadn't realized that the scripture said he would rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels sitting at the head and the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She glanced over her shoulder and saw someone standing behind her. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said. If you have taken him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will go to get him. This has an exclamation point in it, and many translations do. I don't think Jesus yelled her name. Mary! Like that. I think it was more of a, Mary, Jesus said. She turned toward him, and I think the exclamation is appropriate here, and cried out, Rabbani! Which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said. For I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now in this chapter 21 through 18 of the Gospel of John, you have so much to preach on. You could go for weeks and weeks and weeks on this. You could talk about the relationship between Peter and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. You could talk about how um, they, they clearly were Jews because even though John gets there first, Peter is older. So he waits until Peter goes in. 
You could talk about uh, the fact that Jesus makes a turn, very significant turn here, and says, to my God and your God, to my Father and your Father. He changes the language he uses. Hugely important. And you can also talk about the fact that Mary Magdalene, whom John doesn't mention until this moment, but we know from the other Gospels that she wasn't a woman that you took home to meet mom and dad. We know that she was kind of a disreputable person. But it is to her that Jesus first reveals himself after the resurrection. She is the first one to carry the good news that Christ has risen from the dead back to the disciples. That's huge. In a world where women weren't seen necessarily as equal to men, especially someone who was of the ilk of Mary Magdalene, for that type of person, for God to say, here's where we're beginning, right here. Now, for us who know Jesus and how Jesus rolled and operated, it makes perfect sense. Of course you're going to go to that type of person. You have never been the type of Messiah that we have always expected. You have always said, no, 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 no. That's not the kind of Messiah I am. I'm the one who comes to love. So, of course, it's Mary. But instead, I want to focus on the angels and what they say. Because I think it's so amazing what's going on here. So Mary is standing there. The disciples have gone off and they're walking back to the other disciples, maybe running back. They're probably having a conversation about what just happened, trying to figure it out. Maybe things are starting to fall into place for Peter. And Peter's talking to John about it and he's teaching him and he's and we're getting ready to go see everybody else in the upper room where everyone's kind of hiding, waiting to see what's going on. But Mary stays behind and she's crying and she's weeping because her master is gone and she has no clue. She doesn't know what's happening yet. And the angels are there who presumably weren't there when Peter and John were there. But they're sitting there and they say something that angels typically say. Angels always uh, start conversations with us by saying, do not be afraid. Or why are you crying? And they say to her, why are you crying? So important, so important for them to say that, that the first thing that Jesus says to her is, why are you crying? The moment is huge. Mary Magdalene, this woman who has been cast aside by society, stands at the tomb of Jesus. And the question is asked her, why are you crying? Because the answer is, from their perspective, why are you crying? Because... The tomb's empty. Why are you crying? Because I have risen. Why are you crying? Because it is finished. Why are you crying? You should be rejoicing. So often, as I wanted to mock the people who are waiting in line to see an empty room, we forget the power and the significance of that. So I stood in line and I waited and got pushed out of the way and and finally found my way. They were actually closed it like right after we got in. Right. They're like, no more. And I'm like, ha ha, that's not Christian of me. Please come take my spot. No. Um, So I I go in and we wait our turn. And um, the people who were right before us took a long time in the in the tomb and they were here at the first service. So I made fun of them. Um, 
So when Magda and I went in, and this girl Danielle, we go in together, you first go into this, this first room, and you see the hole that's cut right there in the middle? Now right there at the top of the sepulcher is this beautiful dome, and it just lets in all kinds of sunlight. And the sunlight filters into this hole, and it showers down upon this little pillar. And this pillar is covered with glass, and underneath it is a rock. And there's these two candles on it, and, and presumably this is the, the, the stone that was rolled away, a piece of the stone that was rolled away. So this isn't the tomb yet. This is just the, the entrance to the tomb. Um, so you get to kind of, and it's really weird. There's all kinds of candles and, and different pictures and weird things in this room. Um, it's weird from a Methodist perspective. If you are from a Coptic tradition or an Orthodox tradition, it's right up your alley. Uh, but from a Methodist, I'm like, this is, makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm sure Presbyterians get freaked out when they walk in that room. Um, so we, we, we look at this stuff, and then we're waiting to go into the actual tomb. It's this little doorway that you have to stoop over to get in and walk in. And, and the people before us took a really long time, and we're just standing there. So when we finally get in, it, it's this stone that's really about the size of the altar right here, and just as smooth. And there's these pictures all around and these candles all around and and different things and um, adornments from the Orthodox tradition. Again, it felt really strange. It felt weird. Around the corner, back behind the tomb, there is preserved what the tomb would have looked like. Chiseled out of stone. You have to almost crawl to get in. And you see this little like coffin-like space chiseled out of the stone. And it's eerie. It is the type of tomb that, of course, our Savior would be buried in. Nothing like this going, look at me. But something humble, the way he came. But you enter into this room where the tomb is, and it's so smooth, this stone. And the reason it's so smooth is because millions of people, like I did, like Magda did, like Danielle did, who we we went in there, placed our hand on it and just... Rubbed it with this overwhelming feeling that this is where he was laying. This is where he was. And Danielle took a couple of pictures illegally. I can neither confirm nor deny that she took pictures inside the tomb. However, after about 45 seconds to a minute in there, the little Coptic priest who was in the next room goes, Hurry up, come on out, next people. Because, you know, that's just what happens um, in the story. Next. Um, And so we leave. And it was one of those just weird experiences for me. But what I remember about it now is the mocking that I wanted to do with the people who wanted to go see an empty room. Because here's the thing. Mary is standing outside of this tomb and she's weeping. And the angel saying, why are you weeping? Do you not see the power of this moment? That the tomb is empty. It's empty. Do you know what that means? There's the linen cloth. Everything's there. The, to- the stone has been rolled away. Death can't conquer us. N.T. Wright suggests that, like Mary, we all need to go stand at the tomb and weep. And we need to bring people with us. We need to bring people to come and to look into the tomb and to see nothing. 
When we got, we got home on Thursday night, at about, I got, eventually got to my house at 11.30 or something. After over 24 hours of travel and sprinting through the Istanbul airport with 30 pounds of rocks that I was carrying in my um, uh, carry-on bag and, uh, and having Magda beat me, which is very humbling, um, in her high heels. It's just like crazy how amazing. Uh, and so, and we're like just sweating and the Turkish people apparently don't believe in air conditioning. So the, the flight was hot. I, like I did not get cool until we arrived in Texas, which is weird to think about. Um, and, and so just running through there and I was just so tired when I got home, I stayed up the entire flight. Uh, it's a couple hours from Israel to Turkey and then 12 hours and change from Turkey to Houston and then Houston to here. And I stayed up the entire time thinking that I wanted to reset my clock. Like I'm going to go to bed when I get home and I'll open it and I'll be just fine. It'll be great. Of course, my body can do that. Eight hours mean nothing. And um, so I was just physically tired from the flight. The trip is a pretty exhausting trip. There are hikes that you go on. If there is a mountain, you will climb it, even if buses can go up there, because Jesus would not have ridden a bus to the top. He would have walked. So we walk. So you do all of this hiking, just this extraordinary stuff. Um, You may look at me and not think this, but I'm not a very physically fit person. Um, And it was commented to my wife by two people who are both very physically fit. In fact, it's one of their jobs. Um, Like, you know, I don't really think of Michael as a physically fit person. I'm like, well, I'm standing right here. Um, But he was always like at the front. That's right. Uh, underneath all of this lies a lion. Um, I, pr- I pushed myself hard. Um, a lot of times I was in the back helping others um, to get up some of these mountains that were it, at times frightening for people. Not me. I love heights. The tunnel, no thank you, but heights, I'm like, yay. Um, and so uh, it was just physically exhausting. It was emotionally exhausting being in these places, being in Jerusalem during the Holy Week. Just Wow. Um, I came home and I was just toast and I was like, thank goodness I get home and the kids will go to school on Friday. I'll get to wake up in the morning and go, I love you children. Now go to school and I can sleep. Good Friday. Um, so it was like a family day. Um, I love my children. Um, and so they're all there. Grace wakes up. She had come home from school on Thursday, having, um, some, bowel issues um and she wakes up friday morning uh with you're just gonna have to all deal with this because we did um poo up her back all the way it was just a horrible explosion in the night um all over her sheets her mattress uh her her bedspread on the carpet all over her welcome home you know um here you are and jenna's like i've been dealing with her for two weeks you're on type deal. Uh, she didn't do that at all, but we spent, um, hours cleaning grace, getting grace. Um, you know, she actually felt like, yeah, this is fun. Um, whatever. And Corbin didn't like it, nor did the rest of us and cleaning the sheets and cleaning the floor and, and just doing countless things. And the smell was horrendous. And, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is not fun. Um, and, and then, uh, so we lit candles in a room to take the smell away. And, uh, we were there and just did, I don't know what we did the rest of the day, but uh, we blew the candles out. And then we're going over to the Smiths that night uh, to have Shabbat meal together. And, um, and we light a candle like, okay, we have 20 minutes. Let's light another candle in there. 
Um, so we light the candle and, um, and we're getting ready to go and we're running late because that's what we do. Uh, and so we're running out and Jenna and I both go, hey, blow the candle out, blow the candle out. No problem. Um, and so we, we leave and we go to the Smith's house and we have a great time. We're coming home, coming over this hill. I see this big truck coming our way and I went, oh, this is a delivery truck. And then I see the reflectors. Dude, that's a fire truck. I hope it wasn't at our house um, saying that to Corbin. And then I went, oh, why did you say that? I pick up my phone that Grace had had while we were at the Smiths, and I see missed calls from the Alma Heights Police Station um, and our alarm company. And we come over the hill, and there sits another fire truck in front of our house. And I immediately thought, we didn't blow out the candle. And so we we drive into uh, the driveway, and um, I get out, and this fireman, like our neighbors are out, and this fireman approaches me and goes, I'm Captain So-and-so from the Alma Heights fire department. And I'm like, hi. Uh, he goes, are you the homeowner? And I'm like, yes, I am. He goes, there's a candle left on. And I'm like, I know. Um, because I knew at that moment. And, and so I'm looking at the house to see, and it doesn't really seem like much. And he goes, when we got here, the flames in Grace's room were about two and a half feet tall on her dresser. And we were really worried about what was going to happen. I'm like, you think, um, there's a fine line between comedy um, at that moment and seriousness that I have a hard time finding. Uh, that's a shocker to you all. Um, he said, you know, and, um, and so we had to, to break your door down to get in. And I'm like, I don't care. You know, <laughs> you break whatever you need to. But when they break your door down, they really break your door down. Um, like, they're good at that. Just like... Wham! I went and looked at it later, and Jenna's like, it can be fixed. I'm like, in what world can this door be fixed? So, um, it, thankfully, there was not much damage uh, to Gracie's room. That uh, her, her dresser, where it was, like, melted. You know, there's a burn spot on it, and the paint melted off. And there are these bows. She's a bow lady because uh, her mother went to Baylor, and that's kind of rules. Um, and uh, the bows on the wall, and they could have caught on the bows, and then it could have been really, really bad. Uh, but it, th- praise God, it, it wasn't. Um, and so they leave, our neighbor brings our dog back. We're like, Oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Lucy, um, the dog. And, and then we went into the living room and I saw that Lucy was scared of alarms because there was pee everywhere. Um, which I don't blame her. Probably, I would, probably would have done the same thing. Um, and, uh, so that was my welcome home from the Holy Land, was uh, poop and fire. Uh, there you go. So here's the thing that I needed to remember this morning. The tomb's empty. I've been there. There's nothing in it. Millions of people have come through the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, waited in line to go into that room and to see this piece of stone where nothing is. And while my first thought was to mock the people and to say, he's not in there, he lives in you, you know, he's alive type stuff. Really what I need to do is remember the fact that the tomb is empty. That I need to bring the poop that happens in my life, quite literally, to the tomb and look in and go, okay, we've got this. How many of us need to find ourselves at the entrance to the tomb once again? Because we have had a diagnosis that scares us. 
that doctors don't understand. How many of us suffer depression? I came back from Israel and Jenna was hoping I was Billy Crystal. And she would say like, I would go, oh, you look what I found in Israel. My smile, if anybody remembers city slickers. But I didn't. I came home and the situation that I live in still exists. And I'm still finding myself in those places. How many of us find ourselves in marriages that we think are just about barely hanging on? How many of us find ourselves in whatever situation it is, but we feel like there is no way through, no way out of it? How many of us need to come back to the tomb and look in and remember that it is empty? It's empty. He's not in there. Why? Because he conquered death. Why? Because he conquered disease. Why? Because he heals relationships. Why? Because he is God. For every single one of us, there is a time in our life when we need to go to that tomb. We need to look in and remember the power of our God. Our God is bigger than this world. Our God is bigger than disease. Our God is bigger than addiction. Our God is bigger than affairs. Our God is bigger than depression. Our God is bigger than these things. I know this because I've been to his tomb and he wasn't there. He lives. And because he lives, I live. Because he lives, I have power. Because he lives, nothing can stand against us. Now, you may not be in a place today where you need to go look in that tomb, but maybe the person next to you is. And maybe you need to say, hey, let's go look in the tomb together. The question that the angels asked and that Jesus asked Mary as well, why are you crying? Rejoice because it's empty. The greatest thing ever is to go and see something and there's nothing there. Because he lives. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Praise be to God. Do you need to look inside that tomb today? Do you need to be reminded that that tomb couldn't hold our Lord? It was this table, the table of Passover. Seder meal that Jesus sat around with his disciples and something that they had done for years and years and years. Their entire lives had they sat around this table. Every year at this time, they would gather together and they would bless God and they would praise God for gifts of bread and gifts of wine. They would retell the story of the Exodus, the story that remembers when God brought his people from slavery to freedom, out of the oppression of Pharaoh into life as sons and daughters. It was this table that Jesus was sitting at when he took the bread and he broke it and he changed the little words. He said, take this, eat all of you. This is my body, which is given for you. After supper was over, he took the cup and he raised it to heaven. And he blessed God. He said, take this, drink all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. And so we come to do that. We come to peer into the tomb and see that it is empty. We come to step up to the table and receive this gift of life. We come not as disinterested parties, but as sons and daughters. 
not as people who aren't affected by this gift, but people who get everything from it. We come. If you were helping with communion, if you would come forward right now, and the rest of you, if you would join me in an attitude of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this gift of life that we are about to receive. Father, we pray that you would make it be for us the body and blood of Christ by the power of your spirit. And that as we consume this, we would become holy and living sacrifices, bringing glory to your name. Remembering that Christ died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.